0: Are uh, celebrating the coming of King Jesus into the world. When I think when when we talk about Advent and coming in the Christmas season, um, what is the the overwhelming image that people have in their minds when they think about Jesus and Christmas is what is the image of Jesus? What baby Jesus, right? We think about baby Jesus lying in a well-lit manger, right? Surrounded by Mary and Joseph, the three wise men offering, you know, offering their gifts. Surrounded by happy, smiling barn animals, right? And, and, and just everybody just celebrating the birth of baby Jesus. It's a very nice, warm, encouraging image. But the image of the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's description of Jesus' incarnation, it's not really warm. It's not really, doesn't have any barn animals in it. In fact, Paul describes the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world as God humiliating himself into the world in order to come to the world to save his people. It is an image of humble service. It is an image of Jesus coming into the world as a servant. It is an image of Jesus dying on the cross. That's the image that Paul has of the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. Having the right image of Jesus in our minds is the most important aspect to our faith. I think one of the major problems with Christianity is we've heard bits and pieces of information of what Christians ought to do, what Christians ought to believe, but we don't have a full comprehensive picture of who Jesus really is. It's the strangest thing. People's faith life revolves around I don't know, things that they've heard back in the day or things that they hear from media. It's a hodgepodge of mixture of different things rather than basing their faith on who Jesus truly is and according to scripture. A silly example of this is, um, do you guys know the movie Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby? The funniest movie ever. Maybe you guys don't know this movie. In this movie, Will Ferrell plays a race car driver named Ricky Bobby, right, and Ricky Bobby, he's a Christian, and the way you know he's a Christian is he say grace with his kids in a family meal, right? his family meal is Domino's pizza, Kentucky Fried Chicken, all the sponsors, Mountain Dew, right, it's, it's a, it's, he gathers his kids and his wife and his father-in-law, and they pray, and this is the way he pray, Ricky Bobby prays, he says, do you baby Jesus, you and your nice little crib, 10 ounce, 10 pounds, 5 ounces. He's praying to baby Jesus, and his wife says, for God's sake, he grew up, he was a man. And Ricky Bobby says, my favorite Jesus is the baby Jesus. I'm going to pray to the baby Jesus. When you say grace, you can say whatever Jesus that you're a fan of. Ricky Bobby's mind, Jesus is always a baby. This has nothing to do with scripture. But that's the silly example of uh, the I think issue that with, with a lot of people have. They have an image of Jesus that is based on maybe some childhood notion, maybe some experience during youth group or something, but it's not based in the full revelation of who Jesus is. And this sermon, in this part two of being the sermon series that last began last week, Paul describes a comprehensive picture of the work of Jesus Christ and how that work is significant to our salvation. Incarnation, the Christmas season, once again, is the humiliation, lowering of Jesus Christ into the world to save us. And last week's sermon, Paul, we studied the fact that Paul says every Christian should adopt the mindset of Christ, which means Paul is saying every Christian, the way they live their lives, the way their brains should process life, and the way their, where our brains should process our time and money, is we need to process it like Jesus did, in humble service to God. Paul is not saying serving other people is a good idea. No, Paul is saying serving other people is the very mind of a Christian, because that's the very mind of Jesus Christ. During a small group on Friday, The issue was that how do we imitate the servant mind of Jesus Christ? We all agree being a servant is important, right? We all agree serving God and serving other people are important. Then how do you really change your mind? How is service not just one time thing that you do, but how is a service a general disposition of your life? The only way, I think, that that I know that our minds will be shifted to that of a servant is we ourselves have to remember that the reason why Jesus was humiliated and the reason why Jesus came into the world and the reason why Jesus died is to save a person like you and me. Our hearts and our minds need to be persuaded that we are the beneficiaries of Jesus' service. You understand? A lot of Christians have a problem of living the life of a servant. A lot of Christians have a sense of entitlement. We think we're entitled to God answering our prayers. And the reason for this entitlement is because we functionally, realistically do not know, are not persuaded that Jesus Christ has come into the world to die to serve us that we live, we have eternal life because of his service to us. What is so broken, it it means in us, there's something so fundamentally broken and damaged in us that it took the death
1: of God himself to restore new life into us. If
0: you are not, Aware that Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive your sins and give you new life. Not just intellectual agreement level, but functionally. If that doesn't move you on a daily basis, then you will not want to live like a servant. You will want to live like someone who's entitled, as if someone whom God
1: owes you a good life. But when you look at your sins and the damage that your
0: sin caused, the fact that because of such things, Christ died for you, that persuasion will give you heart, give your mind a servant's heart. That's why James, in James chapter 2, is it? It says, faith without works is dead. He's saying, if you say faith, you have faith, but if you don't, if your life do not, if your life does not show acts of service, if our lives are just, just declaration, declarative statements of faith, and our lives are not accompanied consistently with the acts of service, then James is saying your faith is not real. And the example is in James's church. He gives an example of a person in the church. One member of the church is poor. A woman who is a widow is poor. She doesn't have clothes. But you, a wealthy person, looks at that poor widow and tells the widow, hey, widow, oh, I, I feel bad for you. I will pray for you, widow. But don't do anything to serve her needs. James is saying that faith is not true faith. Because James is saying, if you truly knew Christ has come to serve you, and you're saved because of his service, how can your heart not be moved to serve others? The fundamental issue of our lack of service is not the fact that we're selfish, and which is partly the reason, but fundamentally, you're not persuaded by, for the fact that Christ has come to serve you, to save you. Right? So that's what Paul means when he says, you need to imitate Christ. You need to have a mindset of Christ. That's the mindset that you need to have until the day you die in this world.
1: But Paul is saying, if you live like this, like Christ, if you mimic
0: Christ in sacrifice, in humiliation, in service, if you live your short life into the full service of God and his people, then what's going to happen to you is you will be exalted like Christ. Today's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul is saying because Jesus Christ humiliated himself in order to save us, because he died on the cross to obedience, for, the, for the obedience of God, Because of his humiliation and obedience, as a result of his humiliation and obedience, God raised him up and God exalted him. Jesus' exaltation was directly caused by his humiliation and obedience. Do you understand? When Jesus was was raised and ascended into heaven and sitting on the right hand of God, It just doesn't mean he got, he was restored to what he lost before. No, Paul is saying, because Jesus humiliated himself and obeyed God, that obedience led him to this incredible exaltation where he got more than what he had before the Incarnation. Do you understand? Oh man, I'm the one who's geeking out about this. I gotta calm down. I gotta come down. Let me come down to earth. The principle, I think, Philippians chapter two, verse five to eleven, is based on, is a principle that you reap what you sow. Galatians chapter six, verse seven, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps. What he sows.
1: The undeniable universal truth is cause and effect. Your act our actions results in consequences. That's what God is saying. You reap what you sow.
0: There's a consequence the way you live your life. There's a reward that is that you will that you will be given to you if you lived faithfully and there's a consequence that will be given to you if you don't live faithfully.
1: You will reap what you sow. Look, we don't want to think of God that way,
0: right? We, like we were, raised, we were raised with this idea that Jesus Christ loves us because of his grace. True. That we're safe because of his mercy, true. There's nothing that we deserved, that we did to deserve his, to, to deserve his grace and his, his love for us. And that's really true.
1: But we take this great truth and we kind of make this great truth a get out of jail free card.
0: We think, because Jesus Christ died for me, and, and I'm, a, I'm a recipient of his grace and mercy because there's nothing that I could do to earn his forgiveness. then if I'm just forgiven like that, then heck, nothing that I do in this world will matter because Jesus Christ will forgive forgive me anyway, right? It's the greatest get-out-of-jail-free card ever. So Christians don't like to think that there's a consequence to our actions, that we don't like to think that we will reap what we sow. We want God to grant us things but really don't think about consequences of our actions.
1: But that is opposite from God's revealed truth and that's opposite from the way the world works. We will reap what we sow.
0: There's like, best, I guess, example that I can give you is that there's a difference between the way my mom lived this world and the way her sister, my aunt, lived this world, right? My mom, God bless her soul, lived a life that is just constantly buying lunch for people, right? The meals that she bought, and when she bought meals for other people, she just encouraged them, evangelized to them, Right? She doesn't know theology. She just says believe in Jesus. But all her life she spent buying meals for people, encouraging people. Yeah, she didn't go to my graduation. Yeah, right. Yeah, she didn't come visit me when I was alone in America. Yeah. She went to another guy's, another friend's, another child's graduation when I was graduating elementary school. Can you believe that? My parents never came to my graduation. Oh man, I'm like unhatching all my childhood trauma here. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So, so my mom lived a life where I knew I wasn't the priority. Right? Your kids, your kids are the priority. I knew that I wasn't the priority for my mom because my mom spent all her life encouraging, meeting up, talking, encouraging people to believe in the Lord. When you look at my mom's life now in her 80th year, this is what I realized when I went to Korea a couple of weeks ago.
1: She's, there's fruit studying being born through her efforts. The people are saved. The people
0: are encouraged. There are people surrounding her life that love her, that appreciate her. This is different from her sister, my aunt. Her, her, my, my, my aunt, my mom's sister, she spent an entire life working and accumulating
1: stuff. She was very bitter, and she didn't have good relationships with people. And at the end of her life, she died alone. And people just came to her house and
0: bought all her collections at bargain basement prices. She she died alone, and everything that she amassed in her life was just gone.
1: My mom and her sister lived two different lives, and they're reaping two different consequences. How you live right now because most of you are still young, you don't believe there will
0: be consequences of how you live your life right now. That is not true.
1: Towards the twilight years of your life, you will start to reap what you sow. Do you understand? That's the universal truth. It is
0: very important for you to walk with the Lord, to set your mind right by him on a daily basis because that will control your relationship with your children. We think if we just give our children the best childhood ever, take them to nice vacations, buy them things, right? Then that will somehow make them into healthy adults. I don't think so. What makes them healthy adults are parents whose mind is right. Who can constantly, in real, in real ways, guide them with the truth. As you regularly expose yourself to the truth and let God change your mind on a daily basis, that will invariably change the way you communicate with your children, which in the end will, your children will in the end benefit from that kind of relationship. You going against the Lord, you not paying attention to him, you may not notice the consequences, but I guarantee you, you're going to experience the consequences
1: because the universal truth is you reap, what you sow.
0: Even these wealthy, rich, crooked people who seem to get away with it, before the throne of God, they will get what they deserve. There is no one who does not get what they deserve. You understand? That's why Jesus said to his disciples, in the new kingdom of God, The greatest in the kingdom were the people who are last in this world. People who devoted their lives into the service of God and his people in this world. Who devoted their 70, 80 years of their life in the service of God and his kingdom and his people. Even they may not have received glory in this world. In the new kingdom of God, they will be richly exalted and honored. That's what Jesus means when he says, in the kingdom of God, the last will be first. And those who strive to receive honor and comfort in this world, they will be last in the kingdom of God. He's not saying this just to motivate his people to serve. No, no, no. He is describing the realities that, that, that will be to come. Jesus says, if you live a life of a servant you will receive honor and exaltation. But if you live like the Pharisees, Jesus says the Pharisees will not receive any honor in the new kingdom. Why? Because in this world, they sought honor for themselves and they got it. And Jesus says they already received their honor in this world. Therefore, there's no honor for them in the new kingdom you will reap what you sow. And this model is not just for human beings. This model is the model that he experienced. And that's what Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 is about. Jesus reaping what he sowed. In this world, he sowed humiliation, obedience, Death on the cross, that's verses 6 through 8. And as a result of that, verses 9 through 11, he is exalted and he received honor from God. That's verse 9. Verse 9, the first word here is, it says, therefore. The word therefore means because of what Jesus did in verses 6 to 8. Because of Jesus' humiliation and obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed
1: on him the name that is above every name. What made this sermon difficult
0: is the idea of who Jesus was before he, he was incarnate, right? So I thought, wait a minute, what does it mean for Jesus to be exalted after his resurrection. Jesus, before the incarnation, was already God. You know what I mean? Jesus was God. As God, he deserved all the glory, and all the honor, and all the excitation. Then how is it that God is giving him exaltation after obedience? It doesn't make sense, right? Does it mean Jesus obeyed, and as a result of his obedience, he got just what he lost? Doesn't make any, you you, you with me? Right? It doesn't make any sense. If he just got what he, if he just, if going to the cross just gave him what, what what he already had in the first place, if he's breaking even, then what's the point of obedience? And that is where theologians John MacArthur and Andy Davis slapped me silly. This is the way the, th- the theory goes, th- th- not theory. this is the way the Bible describes it. When Jesus came into the world, when in, in John chapter, in, in, in Philippians chapter two verse six, it says, he did, even though in essence he was God, he did not grasp he did not. Consider equality of God something to be grasped. Did not consider equality of God something to be grasped. What this means is, when he came into the world, there are certain privileges that Jesus gave up. Do you understand? There are certain privileges. He was God, but when he came into the world, he gave up. Certain privileges of being God, He did not cease to be God. Jesus Christ was always God; will always be God. By virtue of it, but for the virtue of His incarnation, there are certain privileges that He gave up. That's how do you know? In John chapter seventeen, John chapter seventeen, Jesus says, Jesus prays to God, "Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began." Once again, John seventeen, Jesus says, to Jesus. Praise to God, restore to me, God, the glory that I had with you before the world began. What Jesus is saying here is in John 17, when he's praying, he's he's saying, I had a glory with you before the world began. But in this moment of time, because of my humiliation as a, as a human being, I don't, I have, I have given up that glory. That glory is not with me yet. Do you understand? There are certain things that Jesus Christ,
1: privileges, gave up in order to come to serve us. Okay? And that is part of his humiliation. And not only did he give up his certain privileges,
0: but he came and he served. And when he served and he died, and when God raised him up, and when he was ascended into heaven, God not only restored to Christ what he has lost, what he has given up, But God has given him more exaltation that he had even before that he has given him more exaltation than what he had before the incarnation. God has given him more. For example, okay. Before the incarnation, Jesus was God. Okay? But after his service, And after his death, and after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus became the perfect mediator between God and man. Before the incarnation, yes, Jesus prayed for his people, but he wasn't the perfect mediator just yet. Because in order for him to be a perfect mediator, mediator meaning a person that represents God and the person that represents humanity, right? Right? In order for him to be a perfect mediator, according to Hebrews chapter 14, Jesus had to be incarnate, die, and was resurrected. His position as mediator was fully realized after the resurrection. The position he really fully didn't have prior to the, prior to the, prior to the incarnation. You know, you know what I'm saying? Another example, being savior. Before the incarnation, before he came into the world, Jesus was the agent and the purpose of creation. True. But he became savior of his people after he came into the world, after he died, and after he was resurrected. He wasn't fully actualized savior until he obeyed and died and was resurrected again. Jesus asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were one before the incarnation. But after his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus prays that God will send the Holy Spirit, and God does. The Holy Spirit is sent after his resurrection to his people. So there is reality that he didn't fully possess prior to his coming into the world. But after he came into the world, there are positions and glory and exaltation that he received because of his obedience, because of his sacrifice, because of his death on the cross. Once again, the theory, you reap what you sow, is true in the life of
1: Jesus. And it's true in our lives here. If you live, Paul's argument is, you need to have the mindset
0: of Christ. Because if you live this world in humiliation and
1: service, as Christ was exalted by God, maybe
0: not to the fullest extent the way Christ was exalted, but you too will be exalted and given a high position in the kingdom of God. That's the motive of being a servant. Look, what is the exaltation that Jesus received? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Exaltation means lifting up higher. God lifted Jesus Christ higher. How did God raise God the Father raise Jesus Christ higher? How did God exalt Jesus Christ? He exalted Jesus Christ by giving Jesus the name that is above every other name. And what is that name? He was exalted. He was rewarded for his obedience by being given a new name. What is that name, position that Jesus has has received from God the Father? It is verse eleven, Lord. The exaltation that Jesus received from God is that Jesus received the name and the position Lord. He, the Lord, the, this title Lord that he had was different from his position with God the Father prior to the incarnation. The word Lord here is a position that Jesus got because of his obedience to God the Father. What is the word Lord here mean? The word Lord here means means the person who is a ruler who has all control, authority, and ownership of every aspect of existence. Once again, the word Lord here means the ruler who has all control, authority, and ownership of every aspect of existence. To to, to simplify it, the great Abraham Kuyper, theologian Abraham Kuyper says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. What Kuyper is saying here is, what Jesus means to be Lord, what this means is, Jesus coming into the world and says, That's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Every square inch of existence because of his Lord, Jesus says, that is mine, that belongs to me. The word Lord here means everything in existence belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the exalted position that God gave Jesus because of his obedience on the cross. You need to have a huge understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is not like, like Ricky Bobby. Jesus is not just a baby on a manger, but now he is Lord. Every square inch of existence is controlled by him. Romans chapter, Romans chapter, where is it? Romans chapter 14, verse 9. For this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of the dead and of the living. Paul in, in Romans chapter 14 says, Jesus died so that he can be Lord, he can be ruler, he can be controller of the living
1: and the dead. What this means is, everything happens.
0: Jesus is ruler of all things, and everything that happens to you and me is under his lordship, is under his control because everything belongs
1: to him. We have a hard time grasping this truth because we have our own agenda of the way that our
0: lives ought to work. In our definition, we shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't lose our jobs. We should be married. Our, li- our jobs shouldn't be hard. Our health shouldn't fail us.
1: We have a very positive plan for ourselves. But the reality is, even if things do not go well for you, that
0: does not change the objective reality truth that Jesus Christ controls
1: all things. Even if that means I die a poor man's death,
0: Even if that means my eyes go, I become blind next year. Even if that means, I don't know, I lose everything that I have. That still does not change the fact that Jesus Christ controls every square inch of my existence. We have a hard time thinking that God is in control. We have a hard time thinking that God loves us when our agenda, when His agenda, when His rule is contrary to our agenda. But that's just our delusion. Whatever happens to you and me, many a plan in a man's heart, Proverb says, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Whatever you plan in your heart, Proverb says, ultimately that doesn't matter
1: because it is the Lord Jesus' purposes that will ultimately prevail. You need to take great comfort in this truth.
0: Look, George Mueller is this man of prayer. He's famous for being a man of prayer. Fifth, he, he, he says, God, he recorded all the times God answered his prayers, and he says, over the course of his life, God answered his prayers 50,000 times. But George, this man of prayer who experienced the miracles of God daily. His wife
1: was diagnosed with an untreatable disease. And when, and he really loved his wife. But when someone asked
0: him about how he can trust God in such a turmoil, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he trusts in the sovereignty of God and the love of God. In the sovereignty of God and the love of God, whatever happens,
1: he believes, will be the best for him. He says, if my wife gets better, then I believe that that's God's best will for me, and I will praise him.
0: But if my wife dies, I still believe God is sovereign and he loves me and her death is ultimately what's best for me. Whether she lives or whether she dies, she trusts in the sovereignty of Christ and the love of Christ and therefore ultimately he knows whatever happens to her, it will be God's best for him. This is very different from a person When they suffer a loss, they go, oh, God doesn't love me, and just abandons the faith. This is a person whose trust and understanding of Christ's sovereignty goes beyond circumstances. One of the greatest scientific minds of the history of mankind is Blaise Pascal. And this is Pascal's prayer to God. He says, God, I don't know whether failure is best for me, or success is best for me. I have no idea whether success is best for me or failure is best for me. But you know. Whether I succeed, whether I fail, Lord, you be, the, you be glorified. Once again, this is a man whose tr- understanding of the sovereignty of Christ, whose trust in the love of Christ, goes beyond circumstances and personal agenda.
1: Whatever happens to you, it's still under the great sovereign control of Jesus Christ because God the
0: Father placed him in that position because of his humble
1: obedience to God's will. Do you understand? That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord.
0: What also means Jesus to be Lord means not only is he in control of all things, he is in the process of destroying all of God's enemies. He's in the process of destroying all of God's enemies so that he will restore order into creation. And as after he restores order into creation, he'll give the order creation back to God. Right now, Jesus is in the process of ordering creation but the destruction of God's enemies. That's what 1 Corinthians 14, 15 is about. Right now, there are wars. There are evil men prospering. The world is screaming, we want peace, which means shalom. Shalom means mending what is broken. The world is praying for shalom. Jesus Christ as Lord will ultimately bring the perfect shalom into the world. And he's in the process of doing it right now. How do you know he's in the process of restoring order of creation? Because he's judging people right now. How is he judging people and their sin? People are dying. The enemies of God are dying. Regardless of what a person does, regardless of what person says He's like how evil the person is, no matter how, what, how often do we think evil people prosper, ultimately they die. And they die because they're under the judgment of God and Christ judges them. That's what it means for Lord Jesus to be in control. And thirdly, what, 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 it, what it means for Jesus to be Lord, it means that he is the only way to salvation. Uh, verse 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This, these verses are based in Isaiah chapter 45 verses 23 to 22 to 25 Isaiah chapter 45 verses 22 to 25 it says turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn my mouth has already in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me every knee will bow by me, every tongue will, will, be, will, will swear. They will say to, of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel who find deliverance in the Lord will make their boast in him. Verses 10 and 11 of Philippians chapter 2 is based on Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45 is the Lord is the only Savior. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. The fact that Jesus is Lord means he is the only Savior of men and women. There is no other way of salvation. Salvation doesn't come from Krishna. Salvation doesn't come from Allah, salvation doesn't come from the the philosophy of Marx and Engels and Heigel. Philosophy doesn't come from materialism. I'm I'm sorry, salvation doesn't come from materialism. Salvation doesn't come from a nuclear family. Salvation doesn't come from your success. Salvation doesn't come from anything that you think salvation will come from. Salvation, restoring of eternal life, can only come from the Lord Jesus. That's what Isaiah 45 is about. There is no other way of salvation besides Jesus Christ. And if you do not recognize him as Lord, God says, you will be put to shame. But if you recognize him as Lord, you will be saved. I know Christians should be nice, right? But at the end of the day, We believe in the exclusive exclusive declaration that the Lord Jesus is the only Lord that can save and there is no one else who can save your life, who can save your children, who can restore life into your life, into your children. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us get rid of all the nonsense belief that other things can save us. It is only the Lord who can save us. Do you understand? That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. There is no other way of salvation. Not your cleverness, not your hobbies, not your interests, but
1: Lord Jesus alone. Okay? And it says one day, every, in the name of Jesus,
0: every tongue should confess, every knee should bow, every tongue will confess. Whether people recognize him or not, whether people realize who he is or not, the reality is every knee should bow and confess that he is Lord. One day, every intelligent being in the universe, whether it be angels, whether it be demons, whether it be saints or sinners, every single human being, every single entity that has intelligence will see that Jesus is Lord And they will praise him. Unbelievers will praise Jesus as Lord as they're they're being sent to hell. The image is when people are marching into hell, they will praise the lordship of Jesus Christ. Demons and Satan, when they're destroying the lake of fire, they will praise Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord. There is no one who will not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he got this position
1: because of his obedience and humiliation to do the Father's will. Exaltation, new life, is yours if you live a life
0: of a servant. For God's sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of your neighbor. Live a life
1: of a servant and have the mindset of Christ. Let's pray.